Good evening, everyone. Welcome to The Authentic Woman. I'm your host, Shannon Fisher, and I'm glad to have you all here listening tonight. On The Authentic Woman, I try to provide a wide variety of perspectives on the female experience in America. And tonight, we're going to discuss a very important topic that affects more than 2 million people in the United States. We're going to talk about autism spectrum disorder. And according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, roughly one in every 68 American children falls somewhere on this spectrum. And this is a tenfold increase over the last 40 years. So it's a topic that is uh, immensely important, and we need to raise as much awareness as we can because there are a lot of parents out there who are really struggling to find some answers. I included this topic as part of the female experience because so many mothers are struggling with finding a diagnosis and treatment for their kids, and a lot of them have absolutely no idea where to look for help or where to even start. And so hopefully tonight we can help demystify autism and offer some great resources to people out there who have children who are struggling with autism um, or who they themselves are living with the disorder. We are very lucky to have four amazing guests with us tonight to help us understand more about autism spectrum disorder and give parents some direction as to what to expect if their child exhibits symptoms or receives a diagnosis. My first guest tonight is Dr. Evie Frazier, who is a developmental behavioral pediatrician who specializes in autism spectrum disorder. She works with families, school systems, and the community to provide comprehensive evaluations and ongoing management of children with a wide variety of developmental concerns. She follows patients from infancy all the way into adulthood. Dr. Fraser attended the University of Virginia for her undergraduate degree and received her medical degree from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. She came back to UVA to complete her pediatric residency and fellowship. Dr. Fraser is board certified by the American Academy of Pediatrics, and she is currently a doctor at Bon Secours Developmental and Special Needs Pediatric. Dr. Fraser, I'm so glad to have you here tonight. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm really honored. We are so glad to have you. And our next guest is Dr. Kathy Matthews. She is the Executive Director of Education at the Faison School for Autism. Dr. Matthews also serves as the Comprehensive Application of Behavior Analysis to Schooling Senior Behavior Analyst at Faison, overseeing educational services, research, new program development, training, and outreach. She is an adjunct professor at Teachers College and is a board-certified behavior analyst. Uh, Dr. Matthews obtained her Ph.D. in behavior analysis from Teachers College at Columbia University, where she also taught courses and mentored graduate students. She has presented at numerous professional conferences and has been deeply involved in autism research since 2001. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be a part of this group. This is excellent. It really is. Our, our third guest tonight is Lisa Bragg. She is owner of Richmond's VIP Resource Connection, which puts resources for special needs children in one place to make it easy for parents to find doctors, specialists, therapists, support groups, and anything they might need. It took three years of actively seeking answers before her son was finally diagnosed with autism, so she can really identify with the frustration that many parents feel. 
Uh, and after this difficult journey, she vowed to do everything she could to make sure that no other parent feels as helpless. So she developed the uh, VIP Resource Connection as a tool for other parents of special needs children. Lisa, glad to have you on the program tonight. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited about what we're going to be able to do tonight in helping other parents and people touched by autism. Me too. There's there's so much uh, information that we can that we can share, and hopefully, we'll really shine a light on 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 what people need to hear. And so, the final guest tonight is Carissa Garabedian. She is the publisher and editor of Macaroni Kid Richmond, which is a website that has twice been named the best online family resource by Style Magazine. It's had over a million views. The website serves families of all kinds, and Carissa has added a column that has articles and tips for special needs kids. She is also the mother of a child with autism, and she's very committed to sharing resources with the community of special needs parents. So, Carissa, thank you so much for being with us tonight. I'm so glad to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. I am thrilled to be here, too. I'm so excited to be connecting with more amazing women. Anything that we can do to share as much information as we can is, I think it's something that we should do. Well, let's let's dive right in, and I'll start with some questions for uh, for Dr. Frazier. I guess the first question is kind of the most obvious. What exactly is autism? Okay, well, autism is a label used to describe a cluster of social communication and behavioral impairments. And the exact criteria for the diagnosis of autism continue to evolve, particularly with the release of the DSM-5 in March of last year, which stands for the Diagnostic Statistical Manual used to classify mental health and behavioral disorders. Um, However, the hallmark of autism remains the same, which is a difference in social engagement and interaction to the degree that it interferes with daily functioning. I understand, you know, there's the autism spectrum. So if you could kind of clarify for the audience, there's a wide array of disorders and severity of symptoms. So what is the range of disability that a person with autism would experience? You're right. The technical term is autism spectrum disorder. And there's someone who said that when you've met one child with autism, then you've met one child with autism. (laughs) And this certainly holds true for the children I see in my practice. Um, Some children with autism are in mainstream classes, are able to communicate their wants and needs, but maybe have difficulty making or keeping friends or perhaps have a hard time with trying new things. Um, And there are other children with autism who may not talk or even find to communicate and may require special education classes and struggle with aggressive or even self-injurious behaviors. So it is quite a spectrum. Wow, that really is a wide spectrum. So no wonder they call it autism spectrum disorder. So what are some of the disorders that are on the spectrum? Well, with the advent, it's a little confusing. <laughs> with the advent of the DSM-5, um, autism spectrum disorder is now an umbrella term, which includes things such as Asperger syndrome um, and PDD, or pervasive developmental disorder, both of which used to be separate distinctions. So now we have this one label, autism spectrum disorder, and children are classified now into mild, moderate, and severe based on their level of need for assistance with daily activities. 
Okay, so that's uh, the, the label then uh, to refer to any patient um, on the autism spectrum uh, would be someone with autism spectrum disorder regardless of the, the sub-label of what they have. Is that correct? Well, technically, yes. But okay. you have opened um, a can of worms as far as, you know, debates on either side of this. Um, you know, there's people with Asperger's syndrome who really identify with that label and don't want to be lumped under autism and, and vice versa. But technically with the dsm 5 and yes, it's all under this one umbrella term. I can see how, uh, how, how patients themselves would want to kind of cho choose their own label. So what are, the, what are the initial warning signs that would cause a parent to bring a child in for an assessment of autism? Uh, the initial warning signs are a delay in language or loss of previously acquired language skills. For example, a child who was saying mama and dada and dog at 12 months, but at 18 months is no longer saying these words. Um, not making eye contact is another warning sign, as, as well as not pointing. There's something we call joint attention, where a child points to a bird or another thing he finds interesting, then looks back at his mom or dad and maybe smiles and then looks back at the bird. This task of pulling others into their world is often missing or delayed in children with autism. Along that same line, a child who has little interest in other children or their caregivers uh, is also at risk. And there are also some behaviors that often accompany a child who has autism, such as unusual body movements, like the hands are rocking. Um, they may be extremely sensitive to new situations, textures, or, or loud noises. But, yeah, I just want to say that there's a push to diagnose autism as early as possible because of the mm -hmm. fruit and benefit of early therapy. So if there's ever a question about autism being a possibility, I really encourage families to bring their child in for an evaluation. So at what age do you normally start to work with children with autism? Usually around 18 months of age is the typical age in which I see patients coming in to be evaluated, but there are times where I do see a child um, older, three or four, uh, which is really disappointing um, because of the lack of therapy provided during those key developmental years. So I would imagine that symptoms appear uh, with different severity at different times as well and might be missed, and yeah. So what are, the, mm -hmm. what are the best therapies you found that, that work well uh, consistently with, with different ages and, and different uh, levels of the disorder? Well, ABA therapy has been scientifically shown to be effective in treating the social and communication impairments as well as some of the behavior seen in autism. Um, and beyond what has been described in the literature, the progress I've seen in my own patients receiving this therapy is, is really amazing. There are also medications, which we use uh, sometimes to help manage some of the particular behaviors seen in children um, who have autism, such as difficulty transitioning from one task to, to the next or having trouble with um, being extremely um, over, you know, overstimulated or sensitive to overstimulation. So a, a combination of, of those two therapies kind of to treat whatever individual symptoms that the patient has. That, that makes sense. Do you encounter many adults that uh, are, are diagnosed um, as adults, and how does the diagnosis of adults differ from that of children? Yeah, there are certainly adults who have the features of autism who are never diagnosed as children, and I think that receiving that diagnosis as an adult can be challenging, not only logistically as far as what type of physician or therapist is qualified to make that diagnosis and 
someone older than a child, but also emotionally for the adult receiving that diagnosis. I don't diagnose um, adults with autism, but my firsthand experience is generally from a parent who is diagnosed after their own child was diagnosed as having autism. Oh, interesting. Now, and there's, I know there's new information being discovered all the time, so is there, is there a, a genetic link, and do you have any opinions about what, what the cause is of, of varying degrees of autism? It's generally thought to believe, in, and I believe, that autism is uh, caused by a mix between both genetic and environmental factors, like so many other disorders. Um, we know that certain genetic syndromes, like Fragile X, for example, are associated with autism. Um, there's a higher recurrent risk for autism if one sibling is affected. So, you know, while genetics clearly play a role, there's still something else that's contributing, and the exact environmental risk factors are still not known. <laughs> sure, sure. Are there any that you suspect as far as environmental or dietary factors that uh, seem to be relatively standard, or is, is there really nothing that's standard across the board? Well, there's been some recent developments of associations between things such as older paternal age, um, use of assisted reproduction, and um, maternal antidepressant use while pregnant, but it's not clear whether any of these have actually caused autism. Um, you know, I think that perhaps it, they may play some role. Um, regarding dietary factors, uh, I think that they may also play a role in some children on the spectrum, but it, it is really hard to generalize all children with autism because of just how broad the spectrum is. Sure, that makes sense. So you probably have difficulty communicating with a lot of your patients who come in, especially the, the more severe cases. And so uh, with, with that difficulty in communicating with them, uh, once you break through, what is that like? How does, how does it make you feel and how does it make the patient feel when you kind of finally make a connection with that child? It's wonderful to see in the office. Um, I had a patient who refused to be seen in our exam room on the first visit, and by the third visit, he was able to give me a high five, and it was wonderful. Our entire office smiled the rest of the day. But what's That's even more crazy. exciting is, is really the reaction from parents. Um, when they share that their child gave them a hug or said, Mom, that's what's really rewarding. Sure, because as you stated earlier, it sounds like sometimes they will, you know, have language skills that they then later lose. And so mm -hmm. to, for a child to say Mama and then not say it and then say it again, I can only imagine the joy that that would make a mother feel. Right. So if, if a child has a learning disability or developmental difficulty, does this necessarily mean that they fall into the autism spectrum disorder? No. Um, you know, that's a common misconception. It's absolutely not. These are separate um, entities. I mean, many children have learning disabilities uh, who do not have autism. And so, so some of the things that are confused with autism are things like isolated speech delay, which can look like autism because of the, you know, difficulty communicating and the isolation it may cause. Um, also, anxiety can look a lot like uh, autism. So it's it's not always black and white. And, you know, I know I keep coming back to this, but it's so important um, that a child has come in to be evaluated if there's ever any question or concerns. 
Absolutely. And so what kind of research is currently being done to, to find out more about, uh, about the causes and, um, and the treatment? And are there any breakthroughs on the horizon that you foresee or any hints that have been given in the scientific community? Well, there's a lot of research going on that looks at the possible cause or causes for autism, treatments, as well as studying specific features of the um, disorder. But, you know, really genetic research is what's expanding and growing, and um, what I anticipate is going to give us more and more answers. And I hope that soon we will be able to better understand what differentiates one child's form of autism from another in order to tailor the treatment you know, for the individual. Sure. It's got to be frustrating. Like you said earlier, when you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism, so it's got to be difficult as a doctor to, um, you know, to assess each individual case. And uh, if, if there's no common ground among them, that's a, a great challenge for you. So kudos to you for taking on this field because it's certainly one of the most challenging. Well, you know, I really enjoy it, but it's really the parent. So I'm looking forward to hearing um, Lisa and Krista talk a little bit more, too, and Dr. Matthews as well about kind of hands-on, day-to-day managing children with autism. Well, let's let's move on and ask Dr. Matthews um, a few questions. Dr. Matthews, I would love to get your perspective on autism as it relates to treatment and learning. You're the executive director of education at the Faison School for Autism, and that's a facility that offers lifespan services from early intervention to adult uh, residential services. So what exactly do these services entail? We have an interest in supporting the lifespan of an individual with autism, and we do that by providing our own host of services, as you said, from early intervention to adult and residential services. But we also, we're actually in the process of launching a new service that offers an opportunity for us to help navigate um, the access to services outside of what we do at Faison for families. So we're not only um, just doing what we do at Faison across the lifespan, but we really want to help connect families to other kinds of things that they need outside of education and therapy. Families also need to look for funding resources, and they need to meet with other families and join soccer teams and do all kinds of stuff that you know, really um, creates a nice, comprehensive, you know, experience for the individual with autism. So and we also provide um, outpatient services. So we just, you know, we do a number of different things because we just don't think one bit is going to be enough of the puzzle. But, again, we're also very realistic in knowing that there are expertise and resources out there um, that we want to help connect families to. So it's really been our mission to look at this from a holistic approach. That's great. Every, every life is, is comprehensive, and there are so many different aspects to, to development and, and living. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great that you guys are really kind of taking that holistic approach to, to come from every angle. So have you found that there's a, a lack of these types of services in the area and, and around the country, the services that you're referring your patients to? Uh, do people have trouble finding those? Oh, I, I think so, absolutely. I mean, it's it's really how we evolved over time because we were just a little school and parents kept calling saying, I really need you to be more than that. And we just don't really like saying no, especially when we look around the community and notice that there aren't really a lot of other options. So that's what allowed us to really partner with Teachers College and um, also the Kennedy Krieger Institute to try and bring some more resources, at least into our community, 
and try and develop a model to do this across the lifespan and to grow the services that we have. But there are a few national models. There are a few folks here and there, but it is absolutely not the norm. So that's really uh, disappointing. But I think that the more organizations that get started and really looking at it from that perspective, the more folks will want to copy it and take an interest in it. And I think what we really hate to hear is a parent calling and saying, well, I called that agency, but they only take kids under five. Or I called that agency, and they only take kids that are at the higher end of the spectrum. You know, I think a lot of doors close for families. And, again, it's not really realistic for one agency to maybe be able to do everything, but shouldn't we, if we're really wanting to help families, shouldn't we provide some resources or links to these resources, uh, to these resources for the families that we serve? Definitely, and also having that knowledge of, of, of where the cutoffs are for, for certain services and, and certain institutions, um, you know, having that information to give is, is great to, to save the parents a lot of time. Um, so mm-hmm. with, the, with the prevalence of these disorders today, why do you think that there's not enough attention being given to the treatment of autism? I mean, the, the diagnosis is coming at, at such such a fast rate and alarming rate, and the treatment doesn't seem to be keeping up with the diagnosis. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I I think there's a a number of different reasons. I think sometimes as a, I guess as professionals, we work sometimes in silos. So sometimes there's a research uh, or university that might be engaged in one aspect of treatment or one aspect of research, but maybe not working across different disciplines. Um, you know, and I, or certain, uh, you know, if, if you go into a state and they have a university that really specializes in X or they have a particular agency or community that um, is very supportive of one particular treatment, that's what you might really find in that area. Um, in terms of developing new treatments, there are some uh, research universities that are engaged in this cross-disciplinary approach. So, you know, you've got genetics working with neuroscience, you know, working with you know, psychiatry or medicine, and they're starting to pull those experts together. But I would say sometimes there's a bit of bureaucracy. You know, if a university or someone's getting a grant, you know, which department's going to get that money and for what. So, you know, when I've gone and uh, visited some of these centers, I've seen a little bit of that, you know, happening. And all of that's going to trickle down all the way into how the professionals are getting trained who are going through these universities and then, of course, what spills over into the community. So it's kind of a, a big problem, but what... I think is amazing is when you look at groups like Autism Speaks, these are, these are parents, these are families, and they are really um, cutting through some of this tape to bring the research and the treatments, you know, to the forefront and create access um, to different agencies. So I think we're, we're making some headway, and these super moms and amazing professionals that are emerging, I think are going to really help pave the way to um, get people motivated and on track to really focus on the treatment. That's wonderful because, I mean, it, it is so complex. And, and like you said, with the bureaucracy, with the different departments, I can see how things could really get caught up in red tape. But the more people that are understanding the complexities and all of the needs, and, of course, parents are going to be at the forefront of that because they really want to understand what's happening to their children. Um, I think that's great that so many people are, are really speaking out and, and getting actively involved in in seeking awareness and treatment. Now, you said that you entered the field because you had special needs siblings. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, sure. I uh, grew up, both my brother and sister had disabilities, and I really grew up watching my mom be that kind of super mom who's going to do anything for her kids. And it was just, 
very normal in my house that, you know, we all came home from school and I can just remember sitting around the table and my mom just spent hours with my brother and sister helping them with their homework and helping them with various aspects of their day. And that was just a normal thing that I grew up with. And it really wasn't until high school when you get a chance to go visit your friends and you realize that other families don't operate that way. Um, oh, You know, yeah. that you realize... Yeah, so I, I got a chance to really see what a, a special thing, you know, my mom was doing for my siblings, and that just you know, really motivated me to, I, I realized very clearly that they were doing well because of what she was doing. There was no sort of, I mean, especially then, um, there really wasn't any other, any intervention or any therapy, anything that was accessible uh, to them. I can recall my mom saying that um, for one of my siblings that she was told that, you know, she should just put her in a nursing home, and uh, I just, my mom was just, you know, what are you talking about? And both of my siblings work, they both drive, they both contribute to society, they're absolutely wonderful, happy people, and my mom just decided not to take that kind of an answer or that kind of an approach, so, yeah, it was absolutely inspiring and got me started um, into my work, and I was influenced by a lot of other women. One of the founders of Faison is also one of those super moms who, took me under her wing when I was in college and helped train me my first training in behavior analysis with autism. So a lot of that influenced me to go into the field. And I think that that was actually such a critical part, one of the most critical points of my training. Sure. I would imagine so because, I mean, having a, a personal connection with this would definitely drive you. And I would imagine that it's given you a lot of empathy also for the parents of the special needs kids and the special needs kids themselves because had you not had that experience, you probably would not be able to truly understand. So has that, um, has that empathy and that connection changed your treatment methods or attitudes at all, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely think so. I really have a motto at work, you know, the student is always right, and we always work for the students and the children. So, you know, just because a staff member might want to take a lunch break at this time or do something like that, that's wonderful. But if it's not in the best interest of a student, you know, we're not going to do that. And so those, that might sound like a little thing, but you really have to have it in your mind that you're working for students and you're working for families. And I think at the same time, we have to remember that, a parent is really a child's first teacher. So when they're coming to you and they're concerned or they, you know, have things that they want to discuss with you, even if a parent seems upset or even if you might not agree on something, you know, they they are right. I mean, they are, these feelings are real, these experiences are real, and um, you have to be a good listener and take that in. And it's an opportunity, like I said, if you're not really, on the same page or it's kind of an unusual situation, I try and look at it as an opportunity to educate myself but also find a way to meet somewhere in the middle because we just, you know, you can get kind of bogged down in the day-to-day of running an organization like we do, and I think you just have to remember how personal those experiences are and how real that information and those emotions are. So being a good listener is critical, and absolutely I think my experience allows me to someone I think parents can really, you know, talk to. That, that's my hope, at least. At, at Faison, it sounds like one of your missions is to really coordinate services and to, to tailor everything individually, you know, after listening and really understanding what's, uh, what's going on with each patient. So what combinations of therapies do you find are the most necessary and effective? 
Yeah, that's a that, it's a good question because I think it's tough. It's very individualized for each person who has autism and also their family. I would say as um, someone who's not a medical doctor, it's really important to me that the, the individuals that we serve have been medically evaluated. And that might seem really basic, but not all families seek out medical evaluations or assessments um, in order to receive services. In a school environment, you only have to be found eligible by your educational team, and that does not require a medical assessment. So I would say, yeah, so it's, it can be an issue. So sometimes when I have students that, you know, I mean, they've seen pediatricians, but they haven't been thoroughly evaluated by someone, for example, with the expertise of Dr. Frazier. And so that can make it very hard for me uh, to implement effective treatments if I'm not sure that, you know, what I'm, you know, trying to help a child learn or do, maybe they're having a hard time doing that because they really need some medication to help with their attention or maybe, you know, they need something to help them sleep at night. They're coming to school a little bit too tired. So I think a combination that works really well is having a very sound medical evaluation and if there are needs, that making sure that those are under treatment and then also having a great educational plan with some behavioral support as needed. Most importantly, it's got to be a plan that works for the family. I've seen at times individuals recommend things to a parent that just aren't realistic based on where that parent lives or, hey, the parent has, you know, four other kids at home. You know, can you really expect them to sit down and, and implement this at that time? So we have to really keep in mind what a parent, you know, if we're, if we're seeking additional therapies, what's reasonable for this individual because when you ask people to do things they can't do, uh, that's a concern and it might not be effective. And then I think at the same time, unfortunately, there are still a lot of fads out there and there are some therapies, even locally, that we see that doctors will use or therapists will prescribe that do not have science behind them, that they're really just kind of trendy things that maybe people have heard might work. And so somebody says, well, I'll try that with my child. And so we're really cautious about that. And Again, it's a parent's decision at the end of the day, whatever they want to do. We just would like, as practitioners, we just try and provide the information, support. And thankfully, because we take data on how well the students do, when parents are making decisions about uh, treatment, we can track that with the data and give parents the feedback um, so that they know how their child is doing in response to whatever it is that they've decided to do. Oh, that's great. So you can kind of measure the efficacy of, of everything on an individual basis and provide feedback, and it's, it's almost a, a research tool at the same time. I know that you treat both adults and children. So what is the, the difference in the approaches that you take to children and adults? I think largely with children, there's, uh, in the early years, just a really heavy approach on intensive intervention, and there's research out there to support through a really intensive intervention that actually almost half of the children will get to a point where you cannot detect easily or readily that they have autism. So there's really this intense focus um, on a lot of hours and high-quality intervention in those early years. And then as children get older, you know, there are a lot of other things to consider, too. You never stop, you know, trying to address all of those different skills, but now we've got you know, you're older, you, you're expected to be a little bit more on your own, so we also need to make sure that, you know, you're, you are toilet trained and you can feed yourself and you can get from one location to another in a building on your own. And then certainly as they get even older, we want to see if we can help you to be as independent as possible by helping you to get a job or make sure you can get dressed and, you know, 
uh, maintain your own well-being to the extent possible. Uh, so, you know, the focus just kind of changes just because of what our, you know, society says you should sort of do developmentally over time, and we want to prepare individuals to be as independent as possible. Sure. Uh, and as, as Dr. Fraser said earlier, you know, the, the early diagnosis and, and, like you said, the intervention is crucial. Um, so what do you think can be done to ensure that more people bring their children in for assessment and for testing and, and treatment? What awareness do we need to give the general population in order for them to know to bring their children in for an assessment? Yeah, I think it's, you know, getting back to what Dr. Frazier said about, you know, when, when she gets that three-year-old in her office, she's really disappointed. I mean, I'm sure happy that they finally came in, but gosh, I wish you came in, you know, a while ago. I think that if we could get over a little bit the fear, if we could, um, you know, as a culture accept that there are interventions, we know more, um, you know, there's there's something you can do about it, and actually the time is now, I still regularly the wait-and-see approach, the, you know, it's not so bad, um, you know, we'll kind of hang in there. And if you look at those developmental milestones, I mean, you know, within the next eight months, the child should do X. Well, parents are going to wait until month nine maybe to decide that, oh, gosh, you never did do it. Maybe we've got a little issue here. But I do still hear from parents that they're told to wait by their, sometimes their pediatricians, sometimes their caregivers, you know, daycare workers, you know, it's not so bad. He's just a boy. Boys are always slow. You know, he'll catch up. So I think it's, yes, the awareness, but there's something there where there's kind of two pieces. One is the awareness we need to build amongst the doctors and the daycare workers so that they're helping. And then there's also the awareness with the families to say, hey, it's okay. There's a there's something here we can do to help. Just Just come in. Just come in and try. Even when we've offered help to families, we've seen them not take it, and they decide, they decide to wait. Yeah, the, the the going into denial and not wanting to accept that there's a problem, and um, yeah. you know, and if 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 we can demystify that, I I think that the the understanding of what's happening will you know lead them to not be in denial and hopefully at that point pursue what what needs to be done. So I understand that some people with Asperger's syndrome uh, or higher functioning forms of autism don't receive a diagnosis as a child because their issues were not so severe that they really warranted the seeking of a diagnosis. And so they're diagnosed as as teens or as adults, you know, when they're seeking help for problems at work or in their social lives. Um, Now, how does an adult who receives this diagnosis, how do they really learn to cope? I've seen that a couple different ways. I've had uh, some individuals come to us, because I've actually seen this uh, quite a few times now. Um, Some adults come to us and they're so relieved. Oh, this is it. This is the thing. This is why. And they, you know, um, are just so relieved to have a a diagnosis and an explanation. And that goes obviously very well. Um, because they're going to respond really well to the kinds of things that they need to do to help improve things even further. But at the same time, um, I've often seen adults in a state of crisis where they realize that something is wrong, but they're really not accepting it. Um, So they continue to lose jobs. I had a student who was being removed from medical school. So, you know, he had $100,000 spent on something that I couldn't get him to accept and, and get treatment for this. So I've seen it both sides, so you know, that's very hard. But what I will say is, is great is that there are more, I see more therapists and psychologists who are aware of autism and working with individuals with autism, so there are more resources. I 
you know, I have names that I can give folks of uh, psychologists in the area who can at least help through that coping process. And then mm-hmm. I think on the the other side of it is that, you know, you can provide, you know, vocational training and social skills training, you know, through an outpatient service uh, as well. So there are things to do. It's just even for the adults getting to that acceptance, either you're great and you're okay with it and you're, you're so glad you have a reason for why this has been a problem or we got to get used to this denial. Um, yeah, and it, it seems that, uh, you know, unfamiliar events and stress, you know, like really kind of trigger episodes of, of distress and, and even kind of meltdowns. And so what is the anxiety link and why why are people on the autism spectrum so hypersensitive to stimuli and change? Yeah, that's a hard one. I mean, anxiety is, is real. It is a real um, medical condition that the best course of treatment is medication for that. Um, and then you add in all the behavioral pieces. So you kind of have to start there. So the why of it could be that there's truly a medical issue there that that has to be addressed. And then on the other side of it, I really go back to language, and language is really tied to your social skills. So even if you you have autism and you're able to talk, that doesn't mean you really understand everything that's happening around you. A lot of individuals with autism have trouble with inference or metaphor or sarcasm or, you know, different forms of language and picking up on some of those cues so, you know, they can really struggle sometimes in unfamiliar social situations if things are going on that just aren't really clear to them or that they haven't experienced before. So I think a lot of it is that language. You know, I think about if, I, if I'm if i going to a, a new place, um, often someone can kind of explain to me where we're going and what we're going to be doing while we're there, and I can kind of visualize that and, and be okay with it. Uh, but I think that if you struggle with language and understanding language, you know, you can't have that benefit of someone really coaching you or explaining it. You're not familiar. You don't understand what's going on. And if you don't have a way to cope with that, then it can go pretty horribly. Wow. And, and, and you hear about autistic children sometimes wandering off. Why would someone with autism wander off? Is it a, is it a fear or a, a distraction that goes awry? Um, have you had any experience with, with this aspect of it? Yeah, I have. We actually had a student at our school that went, miss, went missing uh, two years ago for, it was over a week, and it was at a oh, very no. cold period of the year. Yeah, he was at the he was at home over the weekend and, and uh, wandered off at that time. So he, you know, was found over a long period of time, but it was really stressful. But on that end, he was just uh, more of an impulsive child. So you know, just kind of ran off very quickly. Um, so sometimes that impulsive behavior, you might see that as kind of darting off or running off very quickly. And, and I would say we don't always know why. Um, often those individuals are impulsive about a lot of things, you know, really change their minds or make quick decisions uh, across a lot of different areas. I do have seen, a, unfortunately, a lot of children that are really fixated on certain things. There's unfortunately way too many stories of the child that wandered toward a pool or a lake um, and drowned. I mean, there's absolutely a number of those, um, and it's extremely sad. So that's a fixation on water just for that particular individual. Terrible. It really is. So it is individualized, but it is, uh, yeah, it's severe. It's extremely serious. This is scary stuff. It's serious stuff. Uh, On the the, the positive side, um, I understand that some autistic people have incredible talents. They're not normally seen in the average population, kind of a, a savant situation. And so 
whether or not they're intellectually challenged, it seems that some are artistic or mathematical or musical geniuses. And so uh, what is the explanation for that? How does that happen? Yeah, and I'm, I'm so sorry, I don't exactly know, but I, I have seen that in some cases, um, have some personal experience with an individual who would have a very hard time right now sitting and talking to you, yet he can run up on stage and play the piano. He's never been taught ever before, can play Mozart, Beethoven, anything, and has now started to make up his own songs. And he's actually performed in two live performances and had no training and no one even knew what he was going to do before he went on stage and just brought the house down. So that's, to me, the very unusual, very unique kind of situation. I think what I see more often are individuals who really excel in one particular area, you know, for example, a student who can read absolutely any word in the dictionary but can not tell you what any of those words mean. You know, but he can just see and sound out just anything and, you know, can remember everyone's name the first time he meets them, and it, it's just not going anywhere. So I have a lot of individuals that have some just unique abilities and why they have that. I don't know. It, it might be enjoyable to store that information or to be able to look and see those words, or it really just might be a gift, as many people are, are gifted, you know, in certain areas. Sure. That is, I mean, that's truly amazing. It re- there's so much to be understood about the disorders on the autism spectrum that, I mean, it, it, it's really fascinating uh, from, from all angles. Well, let's, let's talk to one of the super moms that we were referring to earlier. Let's talk to Lisa Bragg, because I would love to get some answers from the perspective of a mother um, and someone who helps connect other parents with resources for their kids. So, Lisa, when I was, when I was doing research for the show, I, I kept coming across the words autism community. Um, what exactly is the autism community? Yeah, Shannon, um, the autism community actually has a couple of different faces, and it kind of crops up uh, all around, you know, the United States and probably worldwide where there's just parents and folks with autism trying to find other parents and folks with autism so that they can share because, you know, there is a bit of a social gap that is out there right now. Um, because I try to explain, for instance, to another you know parent who doesn't have a child with autism what we're experiencing, what we're going through. Um, and there's no ill intentions there, but, you know, it can sound like, you know, um, I could be dramatizing or I could be explaining something that, you know, their child did on a bad day or they just don't, they don't get it. It's, it's such an emotional journey and, and, I mean, it really is an exhausting, you know, task that you, you and burden that you have because you want so desperately just what everybody else wants for their child to, to, you know, find that thing they love, to be successful, to be happy, and you're trying to help them with that. And there's some real obstacles in the way. And so you're, you kind of create those communities. So there's everything from, you know, websites to Facebook groups um, to, you know, uh, groups of different people like Aspies, which is Asperger's folks who, you know, get together and chat and talk about life and talk about what it's like to be, you know, that individual. That's great. So you have a, a mutual understanding with people, and you can commiserate and, and celebrate and, and truly understand without having to explain, you know, as you said, to people who just simply can't understand because they're not living it. That's, uh, I think that's wonderful. And so uh, the website that you have, um, it serves and connects the autism community. 
Um, and so I know there are resources like this here in Richmond, and then are there resources like this across the country where people can kind of connect and dial into the autism community? Yeah, the um, the website that I have created actually spans across all special needs because that was one of the um, shocking things that I discovered on the three-year journey with my son was at first I thought there were absolutely no resources in the area. It was like digging for buried treasure. And then as I, you know, kept digging and kept digging, I realized there's actually a lot of resources, but there was just not one place to find them. I found that providers didn't even know about other providers in the same field practicing here in the Richmond area. And so it, it really just provides that form to, to, it's almost like your special needs yellow pages um, with a little more detail so you can understand what age do they serve, you know, a triadict and what services they provide. Um, we'd like to add things like what kind of insurance do they accept, do they take Medicaid. And so a, a, a parent can stop wasting time digging and digging and find one place, use the search tools, and find those resources. As far as across the country, I'm sure they're, I mean, every nonprofit tries to have a resource tab. They're doing it on um, their spare time, which they don't have, right? You know? And so everybody's sure. doing their best to develop that that list, it's, there's not a highway um, for connectivity. So professionals are not able to connect with professionals. They cannot connect with the parents, uh, and, and parents don't have easy access to the professionals. And so that's, that's what the goal of this website is. And, and as far as I know, there are some states that have some kind of a go-to place if you move there and are seeking resources, but other states have nothing. That is, and that's, I, I know that Autism Speak has an autism treatment network that's kind of groundbreaking. It's a, a network of hospitals and physicians and researchers, you know, the, the resources that, that you have on your website. Um, but that treatment network is only in 17 locations across the United States and, and Canada. So what, when people don't live near those 17 locations, there really isn't any sort of centralized place on the web where they can go. In three years of searching, I have not found it, and in all the connections I've made, I have over 200 professional connections here in the Richmond area, and no one has been able to say, oh, you just haven't looked here. <laughs> well, that, that just makes it all the, all the better that, that you've done that here in the, in the local area because it's, it's so important for parents and children to have access to, um, you know, knowledgeable and reputable health care teams. So when you were doing your research and, and putting your, your list together uh, for special parents of special needs kids, um, how did you find the doctors and the therapists and the psychologists and the teachers and, and, and understand, uh, you know, the, the depth of their experience so that you could share that knowledge? That's a great question. You know, it, it really came, it started out in seeking specific services for for my son individually and then expanded out into, you know, just, just meeting people, reaching out to them saying, you know, can you grab a cup of coffee with me? You know, can we meet over lunch? I'd love to hear more about what, you know, what you offer. Um, some of those connections were made through his therapists and doctors that um, my son has seen and developing a rapport with them. There's still more work to do. I have not met everybody and don't know everything that is offered here. And that is encouraging um, because it, it does mean that we have a lot of resources here in the Richmond area. But it was just really one step at a time finding an, a website that had some resources and literally picking up the phone and clicking on the website links 
and, you know, finding out more. Sure, very, very time intensive, but absolutely worth it uh, for, for anyone in the community. So kudos to you for taking that time because uh, I know that it, it takes a lot of time to, to take care of a special needs child, so to do all that on top of it um, is, is very commendable. So is there, is there any place where people can find like a, a typical developmental milestone chart so that uh, parents who think that their child might have some problems can compare their child's development to the typical milestones to know if there's a potential problem? What I would recommend would be the M-chat um, which is a checklist that is very easy. It's not, you know, it, it, parents can fill it out for their child to, just to see above and beyond those basics that you're taught when you are pregnant and what you should mm-hmm. expect and see. It goes a little bit more into specific developmental, you know, identifiers to see if the, your child may be at risk for autism spectrum disorder, and you can go to the Autism Speaks website. There's an mchat.org website, and you can pull that thing, that document up yourself and fill it out and be able to take it to your pediatrician. It really helps you have that conversation to help you express the concerns clearly um, because sometimes that can be a barrier. A parent doesn't really know how to sum up the struggles that they're having and seeing their, their child have, and that document helps them speak that same language with the doctor. Story, that can be kind of a, a springboard for the conversation and for uh, for being able to um, to truly identify. So, how did you identify the issue with your son? How did you know there was an issue? Well, I, I have to give all the credit to my son's uh, babysitter. She uh, was and is a has a master's degree in child development, and she saw his signs very early on. How he wasn't sitting upright, how he was getting lost, just staring into the fan, how he was playing beside children but never really engaging with them, um, how he struggled with transitions and sensory things, and she was bringing those issues to me. And being a, a, a single mom at the time with children that were 16 months apart, I, I was very overwhelmed. And thank, thankfully, we call her my son's angel because thankfully for her, she kept prompting me in a very tender way to say, you know, please check this out. Please keep trying um, because I was the door shut in my face. I was told my son's just a late bloomer. He's not going to be your athlete. He's just a strong-willed child. And this is by, you know, unfortunately some professionals, but there are other great professionals out there who were able to give me answers one by one. Um, first, you know, a counselor who got me to an occupational therapist and then finally, you know, meeting with one of um, the doctors here, the pediatric developmental um, doctor, to get a true diagnosis for him and really finally find that answer of, and the answer is so critical because it opens up the doorway to have your insurance cover that ABA therapy that's so critical. Oh, that's wonderful. How fortunate that you had a babysitter with that kind of experience that was able to uh, to identify it early early enough to, to tell you and to, to, to goad you to continue to talk to doctors until you found someone that could help. So um, tell me some of the experiences that you've had as a mother of a child with autism. I'm sure there are a lot of ups and downs that, that people wouldn't normally think about. What, what is it like to be the mother of, a, of an autistic child? You, you come into parenthood and you realize that it is the hardest job you'll ever love. And parenting a child with autism takes that to a, a different 
degree. It takes you to depths of um, despair um, and worry for your child when you see that you, they really have these struggles and they could impact their, their life long term, that they're not going to be able to be a functioning adult or you know, they're not going to be able to contribute to society. And, and who's going to take care of you when I'm not here to, you know, extreme beautiful highs of, you know, hearing that child who lost their speech say mama again or, you know, seeing your child open up after you've gotten him on um, anxiety medication, which which is in my instance, my son never lost his speech, but he has a big anxiety component. And when we started him on that medication, it was it was a changer. It was a game changer. He is now so much more perceptive, and he has um, his imagination has just increased tremendously. And it's just it's beautiful. So there's you know there's these very very tough tough trials, um, and then you know the <laughs> having those trials happen in public and getting the comments and getting you know um, the judgments and the hurtful um, things said to you and, and also said to your child that leave marks you know. Know, but there's also these beautiful moments that you have with your child um, that go deeper than maybe other experiences you'll have. Yeah, and I think that it's not just important that parents of children with problems understand this. It's important that everyone understand this because, you know, you're going to be at a playground with your child, and if something is happening, uh, you know, the, the mother next to you that has a child that doesn't have special needs needs to understand a little bit more about autism spectrum disorder so that there, there aren't going to be a judgmental look because it is hurtful and you're, you're dealing with enough as it is trying to manage this in your life that wouldn't it be a lot easier if everyone kind of were supportive? Yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been in each pair of shoes. You know, I... <laughs> Very embarrassed to say so, but I can be honest and say, you know, before having kids and having my first child, I was, you know, judgmental of other situations and things, not having walked in those shoes. So this has been a big, you know, humbling experience as well and really opening my eyes to understand exactly how much compassion is, you know, needed and so important. And, you know, my child can be you know, very upset and, and, you know, over the littlest thing. And, you know, the, the best thing you can do is either, you know, please don't walk away. Please don't, please don't make a terrible comment. You know, <laughs> use your filter and keep it to yourself. Um, and, and just know, you know, parents, they're never going to make this stuff up. You know, these children are never trying to be bad. It's not, you know, nobody, no child ever wants to be bad. There's there's something going on there, and uh, you know, please just put on those glasses of compassion before you open your mouth. Sure, and 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 I think that's a lesson uh, in, for everything in life. Um, you know, look at every situation with compassion, because until you've walked in someone else's shoes, you don't understand any situation that they're in. Uh, you know, be it medical or or parenting or anything in their personal or professional life. I think if we could all put a little more compassion into our attitudes, we would all. Um, be a lot happier and get along a lot more smoothly. Well, we have we have another parent here um, of a child with autism who clearly understands everything that we're talking about. So I'd like to move in and ask Carissa a few questions. Um, Carissa, how you doing? Thanks for uh, for patiently waiting as we've gone through um, the other guests. Your Listening. website, you have a, a section for special needs children, and it tells personal stories and offers resources like classes and events for special needs kids. It's a website that lists events and classes for all children and all families. 
Um, so what yeah. made you decide to add the special needs aspect to your website? Well, in in doing the website, I was completely aware and researching and looking into all the different events that were happening that there was very little out there talking about things that you could do or places you could go with children that did have special needs. Um, and in addition to that, it also felt to me that there was not really much happening in the community where information had a, a central place to be shared, whether it be from moms or professionals or just from the general population wanting to share or ask questions. So I decided to make this edition about three and a half years ago um, on the site. Initially, it was just me submitting a piece weekly about what it was like for me to be a mom to a child with special needs. I had um, my daughters write pieces about what it was like for them. And then slowly, I had professionals that wanted to write some pieces, and then I had some moms and dads that wanted to write some pieces. So it really became a place that people could be felt they could be heard. It didn't necessarily have to be an expert. It could just be somebody who wanted to share. We even had a mom who just wrote in questions saying, you know, when I see this happening, what should I say? Kind of like what Lisa was just talking about, like with those, the compassion glasses. You know, just a little bit more awareness all across the board. Sure. And for, for people to have a voice to talk about their experience, I, I think that's extremely valuable because a lot of times, you know, their words are falling upon deaf ears with people who don't understand. And so to, to raise awareness for people who are coming to a, a family site for all families, that they will then read something from a parent um, or from, like you said, your daughters, from a child who's experiencing things from a unique perspective, and, and they'll get that little glimpse into special needs life that they wouldn't otherwise get. I think that's, um, I think that's great that it took off like that. So what kinds of events and classes do you list that are that are good for the special needs kids, that are specific to that? Um, well, it really varies. You know, I will include as many as I can find, and the parent would obviously be the one to choose what was appropriate based on their child because every child is so different. Um, but we have a lot of local venues that actually offer a night each month or a day each month just for special needs kids. The Children's Museum of Richmond does one, Jumpology does one, um, a Jump Zone does one. So there's more and more resources and facilities that are actually focusing on the special needs population where you can come in as a family with your siblings and know that it's going to be a safe place for you to be. You're not going to have to worry about feeling judged, feeling uneasy, feeling uncomfortable, and the kids are going to have a great time. That's great. That's really wonderful. And for, for the listeners who are out there, I, I have links to both Carissa's and Lisa's websites um, on, the, on the broadcast page. So you can, you can link, and if you're anywhere around the country, let that be a model for you so that you can log on and maybe create these kinds of resources and these kinds of connections in those communities that don't have, have that network like, like we have here and, and, and like our building in other places. I think that that these are really, really great models for people to follow and people to share as we raise awareness. Now, so having a, a child with autism certainly, Carissa, gives you insight into the alterations that people have to make in their lives and in their homes to accommodate the special needs. Um, so what special accommodations do you find are necessary in schools and homes to provide for the children with special needs? Again, I think this is something that's going to vary across the board based on a child because the spectrum is so large. Um, the one thing I think 
that I feel so strongly about for from a school level or really just in general is just not only awareness but acceptance. I think that um, education to those who quote unquote you know do it do not do it differently as as I say to my girls all the time is really key. Um, special needs parents and kids really just want to feel like we fit in. We want to feel like we're not that outcast and that there's that opportunity to not not miss out on something because our kids do it a little bit differently. Um, Loneliness tends to be a big, consistent feeling that I get from many of the parents that I talk to. Um, I hear a lot that, you know, typical kids, the parents of typical kids will often compare situations with a parent who has a child with special needs and it's something that's just so not relevant that the special needs parent will often walk away saying, they really just do not get it. They really just don't understand what I'm talking about. And it's kind of defeating sometimes. Really hard. I had a parent that said to me recently, I was up all night with my child, and I just don't understand how this child just does not sleep. The sleep is just not needed. And she was telling this to her best friend who doesn't have a child special needs, and the parent responded, I totally get that. My my child's studying all night long and is on her AP class. And the mom just kind of looked at the other mom saying, really? Like, that's never going to be something that I understand. Like, And sometimes we just want to be heard and say, that must really stink, and I wish there was something I could do to make it better. It, it's just It sometimes makes, I, I can speak for myself as well as the moms and dads in the community that I connect with, and it just is an overwhelmingly lonely feeling. Sure, sure. And I think that that's true with with people who have chronic illnesses that people don't understand. You know, there are Mm -hmm. so many, um, to use the phrase that you just used, doing it differently. There are so many people who are uh, living lives that are that are different, be it you know whether they're living with a chronic illness or have a child that has autism or some other kind of special need. Um, I would imagine there's a lot of depression among people who are feeling that isolation. I think I think that there definitely is. Um, I also think that a lot of the families that um, I talk with, and including my own, we have to really think about a lot of different things. You know, like there's a lot of home security devices that get put in, say that, like Dr. Matthews was talking about, the children that run away. Um, I haven't had that issue, but I know many people who have have had to install different security systems or locks at the top of the door so that the child couldn't reach them. And, you know, things that you don't necessarily think about if you're, if your kids just do it, quote-unquote, the regular way. Wow, yeah. And there are so many different ways to um, approach, you know, as we've discussed all night, the, the treatment and, and so many different different levels of the necessity of treatment and different things to do. And a lot of people, you know, they suggest dietary changes and holistic treatments. And so what are your opinion on those courses of treatment? Have you tried them? And um, uh, people that you've talked to within the um, autism community, what, what, is, what, do you, what is your take on that? We have tried some. My, my feeling and my husband's feeling has been if it was nothing that was going to be too invasive and it might make a difference, then let's give it a whirl. Um, sure. We have tried. We tried. We tried the gluten-free, and that did not work. Our son's diet is very, very limited to begin with, as many kids on the spectrum are, um, and we really did not see any improvement to continue torturing him in that way. So that that didn't work for us. Um, we also did try a clinical trial in North Carolina a few years back. We're pretty certain we were in the placebo group. Um, it was an interesting experience, but again, no no real results. We tried a learning program that didn't have any long-term lasting differences, but 
he definitely got some interesting social skills from it, um, and it was a neat a neat experience. So, you know, for that, it didn't it didn't do any harm. Unfortunately, nothing nothing made him walk away with tremendous results in a positive direction of any major difference. Right. But what I find right. really makes the most difference is just the continued socialization and keeping him as active as we can with typical peers as well as special needs peers just to just to keep that communication going. That's great to know that the, the consistency of the communication and keeping it up. Now, you said that a lot of people on the spectrum have dietary restrictions. What, what are they? Not necessarily restrictions. I mean, for, for Mark and for a lot of the kids that I know, it becomes like a, a a taste or a touch or a feel like and he he will only eat a certain food if the smell is okay if the toast is toasted just the right level if it's a little bit less a little bit more he will not eat it um it's a tactile there's i mean there's he doesn't eat many meats at all i can't make any rhyme or reason to his patterns but i can just tell you his foods are so so limited that what he does eat we just stock up on Whatever, whatever you can get in, I, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so like Lisa, I'm sure you've had a lot of ups and downs, and so tell me some of the experiences that that you've had having a child with autism. Some of the downs and the daily struggles for us are, you know, one of the things that I always tell everybody that the heart is so hard for me is that he cannot tell me how his day was. He's verbal, but he doesn't have the capacity to explain to me that he had a good day with detail or a bad day. He can't tell me if he was made fun of or if he feels left out. Um, you know, that's something that I'm I'm tremendously lacking in in wishing that wishing that I could have and hoping that someday maybe it'll it'll continue to, to increase. Um the fear that he would walk away with a stranger and think nothing of it is is a pretty tremendous burden to have to carry. Um, he can't ride his bike without one of us because a stop sign doesn't mean stop for him. So that becomes another challenge. You know, there's little things that you don't necessarily take into consideration unless you have a child that, that does it this way. Um, you take for granted the ease. He's the youngest of my three, so with my older two, all of this was never a thought. It just was the way that I knew it to be. So with yeah. him, we are all learning how to do things differently, and it, and and that brings you to the plus side that you know he's a boy who is so amazingly kind. He does not know how to lie. He is pure. He laughs with you. He loves you. He just is. He's whole. He teaches everyone that touches him. He teaches just the importance of life. He teaches you perspective. He teaches you things that really matter. And his two older sisters have benefited from learning compassion and learning patience and all of their friends have have learned not only awareness but just acceptance and if he can continue to touch lives the way that he has then then we're going to be okay you know it really does seem that people who have adversity in their life you know be it themselves or through parenting a special needs child really do gain an appreciation for life and the things that are truly important in life. And that really is a beautiful thing. So that is, in all of this, that does seem to be a gift that's kind of across the board is that you have a gift of perspective, you have a gift of compassion, and I'm sure that you carry that with you in other aspects of your life as well, in addition to parenting. Oh, definitely. 
Yeah. But you definitely have the moments where you just want to get into bed and you want to cry for a moment or two, and that's okay too. Absolutely. You can't you can't have the ups without the downs. You can't have the downs without the ups, and you're dealing with a lot. You're dealing with a lot that people don't understand, and uh, like you know, Lisa was saying earlier, the the fear uh, of of the unknown, and will my child be yep. able to take care of himself? You, you know, mm-hmm. these. Um, I imagine they're always weighing in the back of your mind. So that's that's a lot a lot to carry around. So sending blessings out to every single parent of a child on the autism spectrum, whether it's uh, mildly affected or or severe, it sounds like it's. Um, it's it's a lot to deal with, and I'm glad that this community exists so that you guys can talk to each other and that the resources are being combined slowly. Hopefully there will be, a, an, if not a national network, a, um, a national trend toward local networks to really combine the resources so that people don't feel alone and they and they do feel that they can that they have someone to talk to and that they can get their children together with other children who may or may not understand for the socialization you guys are all a great wealth of information and experience so i've got some i've got some more questions any of the four of you feel free to kind of jump in and and answer any of them uh, I, I guess the, the first thing i have is the, the vaccine debate it's gotten a lot of press in recent years um, so is there any truth to the claim that vaccines are contributing to autism and um, within the autism community, what are the prevalent opinions in that? Well, this is Carissa, and I guess my thought is that what I have done for my own son is chosen to do the vaccines in stages and not do them all at once. I Just mm-hmm. from my own comfort level is what feels right for me and, and my husband. Um, and we've gotten we've gotten to a comfortable level just moving forward in that direction. Dr. Frazier, do you have any um, any input on that or any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I hear that a lot from families that they're hesitant to get vaccines, and you know, um, unfortunately, that was based on studies that just were not accurate. And there there have been recent scientific studies showing that vaccines, you know, have not caused autism. But, you know, as a parent, you have fears. <laughs> you have worries and you don't want to make things worse. So um, I just feel that if a child can get the vaccines, whether on their own schedule, on their own time, um, done maybe a different way, you know, I, I want parents to feel comfortable, but I also really want children to have their vaccines. It sounds like a balancing act to be to be made there. And so aside from the vaccine issue, are there any uh, other issues that are really controversial within the autism community? Well, what do you guys feel um, as far as the <laughs> classification and the Asperger's and no Asperger's? I This is uh, Dr. Fraser talking, and, you know, I've heard from families coming into the office about the changes and, you know, name um, and what mm-hmm. that means emotionally for, you know, their child or, you know, if the child's speaking for himself. And this is Kathy Matthews, and, you know, I've certainly um, seen both sides of that, too. And, and I went to a talk uh, that was held by Dr. Lord, who is involved in the uh, diagnostic tool for autism. Um, she developed the ADOS, and so she gave a talk, and she was on that committee that, you know, developed this change in the DSM. And so when I heard her reasoning, it helped me to understand it a little bit more, um, and it makes sense from the standpoint that the separating the diagnoses was just not reliable. 
um, it just wasn't uh, resulting in really creating a distinction between Asperger's and autism uh, in a reliable or consistent fashion. So I understood that, but I also hear what Dr. Frazier mentioned, you know, individuals, particularly uh, young adults, who really identified, let's say, as an Aspie, you know, I mean, there's really kind of a, a culture behind that in individuals that, uh, you know, their um, kind of reputation or how they're connected. So, you know, I think it's a, a big transition, and I and uh, it, it's going to take some time. But I agree with Dr. Frazier. That's probably the other big one going on right now. Shannon, I was going to say, this is Lisa. The other thing that I've seen among the parents is, you and even some of the different bigger, larger groups, you have some groups and parents who want to cure autism. Like they want to find that cure. They want to fix their kids. They don't want them to have autism anymore. Then you have a group that really embraces autism, really sees the gift in it and says, you know, I wouldn't want it any other way. So there are some divides there. There's a recent book that just came out from a, a, a father's perspective, perspective who's raising two children with autism, and the title starts out with, I wish my child had cancer. That really wow. struck people. Yes, it's a very, very um, loud um, statement being made by that title. But, you know, there, there's just, there are some very big divides there with those who, you know, really are driving to, you know, cure autism and others who really want to accept it and embrace it for what it is. And that's beautiful. And that can sometimes create some divides within the autism community. There is a, a debate as to whether a patient can recover and whether there is a cure. What are, what are your perspectives on that? I mean, have any of you seen someone who has, quote, recovered from autism, or is it just a matter of maintaining treatment? Really, what is the answer to whether or not there is a cure? Uh, this is Kathy Matthews, and I think that years ago when I would hear that word recovery or see, you know, famous people talking about recovery or whatever it was, I was always really disappointed, and I thought that that was giving a lot of folks false hope. But there actually is some research in the last couple of years that is starting to document um, these instances of recovery, which is really just defined by um, the features of autism or, I guess, during reassessment, it not being detectable. So they're really just not meeting the diagnostic criteria anymore. So, you know, I'd, I'd have to say I'm sort of kind of gone over to the other side that I understand that it is something that in that sense um, can potentially happen. There are more reports of that now, um, and it is all a function of the intensive early intervention treatment. So that does seem like a possibility now. That's wonderful. And, and hearing that it's, you know, that it's largely caused by early intervention and, and early diagnosis, that makes sense because you can, you know, really start the treatment and, and start the socialization and the communication skills. That's it's wonderful to hear that people are, are, are not meeting the diagnostic criteria. Now, for, for those who, who do have autism into adulthood, is it possible for someone to live independently and take care of themselves, and are there employment opportunities for adults on the autism spectrum? This is Kathy Matthews, and I really think that the future of autism you know, it should be a happy one. I think that we've really struggled. You know, there's um, parents often have an intense fear. You know, many of the parents at my school, they absolutely dread heading toward that, eight, you know, year 18, 19, 20, you know, when their kids are going to have to graduate and go into the adult world. It was really kind of falling off a cliff, and parents were terrified. And we worked very hard as an agency to really try and create, and we're kind of corny, but we call it the good life plan. 
it doesn't have to be a bad life or a fearful life. It's just a different life. And none of us, as um, Lisa said, really came into parenthood thinking, I'm going to have to learn how to do something. I have no idea how to do. I don't know anything about autism. So it is very fearful in that sense. But, you know, as the resources have developed and we're looking at, um, you know, residential services and vocational training and, and those kinds of things starting to happen, you know, I think you can expect as a parent, you know, a very good life and you should expect that. And absolutely, many individuals um, can live independently with some supports and or, you know, maybe not even with any supports. Again, it's a real spectrum and it's just going to depend on where that individual is and whether or not those resources are available um, in the community where they live. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of hope. I mean, it really sounds like they're making more discoveries all the time and more developments all the time. So it's really encouraging for me to hear that, for, you know, that, that people are living independently and really having a great improvement in symptoms. And I, I think as awareness continues to be raised, hopefully that will just continue. And, you know, the the rate that it's been diagnosed has been increasing steadily. And hopefully the, the rate at which it's treated to a large extent will also increase, you know, as, as awareness and, and funding for research increases. So I know there are misconceptions out there, a, a lot of misconceptions um, about autism. And um, so what are the common misconceptions that people seem to have? This is Carissa. Um, I think that one of the things that comes to mind for me that when I was in college and studying education and social work, doing an internship with children that had autism, the children then were, they were a much more aggressive population to work with, and, they're, and this was in New York, and the school that I was working in actually had police officers that needed to be a part of the classroom setting because there was such violence that happened. Um, oh, wow. And they were a, a much larger in statue, um, in weight. And for me, that was what I knew of autism then. That was 1983, 84-ish. And now autism is just such a different picture for me. You know, when someone thinks of autism now, they'll think, oh, your child must do a lot of flapping or your child must do a lot of TV talk. Or, um, And again, for, for our, our son, that wasn't the case, but for many it is. So there's there's so many different variables, and, I, and I'm sure if Lisa and I were to sit and talk about our children, there would be one or two similarities and there would be so many differences. Yeah, Chris, I think you, you hit on it perfectly. This is Lisa. You know, that, that statement cannot be said enough. If you've met one person with autism, you've mm-hmm. met one. I think a common mm-hmm. misconception is people want to say, you know, like we tried out a new um, church recently and I dropped Austin off and I tried to explain, you know, that he has autism and, you know, the, the individual said, oh, I've worked with children with autism before. And I took that signal and said, okay, great. And I walked away and I came back and uh, after the service and my son's not in the room anymore. She said, yeah, he was really getting upset because of transitions and screaming and crying. So we sent him down to the special needs room. I said, yeah, a child with autism really struggles with, with that. And she said, yeah, I know. You know, there's nothing done to 
to help support him, you know, and again, you know, if you know one child with autism, that doesn't mean that now you can go work with every child with autism and know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to have to get to know that child and understand because it is truly a spectrum and um, each kid's going to You really do have to meet that child, yeah. Every every child has been met at such a different level. It's so true. Those sensory issues, it, it must be extremely frustrating for the children to be hypersensitive to, to stimuli like sound and light and activity. Do your children, Lisa and Carissa, have that hypersensitivity? And and for uh, Dr. Fraser and Dr. Matthews, is there anything that can be done? Is is that one of the symptoms that medication can help? Shannon, this is Lisa, and absolutely my son has sensory issues. You know, he, from bright sunlight to um, the way things feel too strong emotions exhibited by, by other children. I've seen time and time again where, you know, sensory issues like that um, have set him off. To, or he's very visually perceptive, and so if he walks into a new room and he's already, you know, very elevated, he can't focus. He he, he would see something and start looking at it and, and, and playing with it, but then he'd see something else and something else, and he would get so confused that he'd literally melt down because he just couldn't take all the visual input. There's just been so much visual stimulation that he is overwhelmed and he can't filter it and he's lost it. Yeah, and this is Carissa. And um, for our son, I'm also very aware and interestingly have had to say over and over again in his years of education to his teachers, he's not going to look at you when you talk. So you don't need to ask him to redirect his eyes back to you. He hears you. And in order for him to listen to what you're saying, he can't look at you because if he looks at you, he is going to be watching your mouth move. So his eyes won't be on you, but don't question that he's not listening because he gets it, and he does. But it's just his way of being able to pay attention. And he, sure. and he, can, multi, he can multitask in ways that I can't, but he can't wear collared shirts because he doesn't like the buttons. He doesn't like – he has a lot of clothing issues. You know, I don't know, for Lisa, if you have – the same, but, you know, it has to be like cotton T-shirts, has to be elastic waist pants and, you know, things that don't always, you don't always find easily. Okay, I really appreciate what Carissa just said because I think that point you just made about eye contact is what makes it so hard for educators and other professionals who are trying to help an individual with autism because every child is so unique. So when parents can convey that information and educators can get trained and understand that better, um, it just goes such a long way because in some instances, someone might perceive Carissa's son as someone who doesn't care or who isn't interested or isn't paying attention or who isn't even capable maybe of what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, during the instruction. And then that, you know, he's at risk of being left out or not moved on or, and actually ultimately becoming understimulated um, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really um, a, a huge challenge and, and a huge focus. And, you know, we would uh, do well to spend more time on that. This is Dr. Frazier, and I was just going to um, comment on that, that the sensory disorder, the hypersensitivity to stimuli in the environment is very common in children with autism to the point that they've now added it as part of the diagnostic criteria um, with this new DSM-5 that we've talked about because it is just so common. And, again, it's a wide range. So, um, you know, for Carissa's son, it's, you know, the the textures and the certain feel, and for other kids it may be loud noises or certain food intolerances 
uh, things like that. And so it is a wide range. There is um, help with that. I mean, there are behavioral strategies, um, but then we do often use medications to help uh, when those sensitivities get kind of in the way of daily functioning, getting through school, getting dressed, getting ready in the morning. And those um, I've seen where it's been really helpful for a lot of families. That's great. Now, with your with your combined experience, I would imagine that probably any of you can um, identify a, a lot of the symptoms and can identify a child with these developmental cognitive communication difficulties who maybe hasn't been diagnosed um, or who even, you know, the parents might not notice. Uh, it's a sensitive topic, but if you encounter a child that, you know, in a, a non-clinical situation that you really feel uh, needs an assessment, how do you handle that? How do you um, address the situations and talk to somebody about bringing their child in? Well, this is Kathy Matthews. I, I think you bring up a good point that is really difficult, and I imagine we've all been there. Um, I'm just kind of of the philosophy that, that I'll take a risk. Um, mm-hmm. I'll risk that being uncomfortable I'll risk someone getting mad at me. But it's only actually come up really, though, a handful of times, you know, in situations where I don't know the person very well, I might just try and engage in some conversation. I try, I'm trying to think right now of a swim class that, that I've, I went to, and um, there was someone in that class that, you know, kind of I had some concern about. And so I just try to develop a dialogue with that parent and, and come to find out she was kind of on the track to, to looking into into some things. So that was good. But I just, you know, I, I'd rather try and engage and, and have a conversation with that parent and try and, and get there if I can um, and take that risk. And there have been occasions where I've done that and it has not turned out well and someone has become very angry at me, but, but I think it was worth doing it. I know that since uh, it, it's such a complex combination of you know, genetic markers and environmental factors, is there anything that parents of all children should do um, to positively impact early brain development? Wow, Shannon, that is that is a question. I'm going to have to chew on that for a minute for sure. But what I would definitely, you know, say no matter what, you know, when we talk about parents who are so afraid of hearing that a child has, you know, autism or, or anything to the point where they don't seek help. Taking that step and having that courage has helped me <laughs> and it's helped my son. And without being able to swallow that lump and take that step, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the risk? If I risk going and seeing if this, this is the answer, if my child has autism, then I find out and I can get that child what they need. If I don't take that risk, he goes another day without help. He goes another day with a lack of understanding. He goes another day with people um, struggling with him, and he definitely goes another day struggling. And this is uh, Kathy Matthews, and I think you're also asking kind of prevention-wise in general, maybe in the absence of an obvious concern. Is that also part of the question? Absolutely. Because I think that in general, parenting is just very different now. Um, It is more common when I walk into a waiting room that parents and children are on iPads or iPhones or watching TVs. And when I go to the park, you know, the parent next to me who's pushing their child on the swing is texting or calling somebody on the phone while they're doing that. And I'm not trying to point fingers at everybody, but something has really changed uh, in parenting, I think, or so it seems. And 
I think we just have to get back to having a lot of interactions with our children. We definitely know there are longitudinal studies over the course of time that show that quality interactions between parent and children impact development in a number of ways. I mean, set autism aside, but they just cause children to be more ready for school or to, you know, acquire language a lot faster in general or to be more productive later on in life. So I would say parents out there who have, you know, young children and maybe there's not an immediate concern, um, you know, just maintaining those great interactions and going back to old school, old style parenting that, that likely we were all brought up on it's just something to kind of remember. I, I love all the technology, too, and I have it all myself, but, you know, I put all that down when I'm around my child and just try and make sure I'm having those quality interactions. So. Oh, but I think that is important. I, I, I mean, it, it, brain development and, and social development and family love and human-to-human interaction, I think that uh, I think you're very right. Studies show it, and I think common sense also, you know, shows it too. We really need to interact and put down the technology and have the conversations. How was your day? What are you doing? I think that's really, really good input. This is Dr. Frazier. I Along those lines, I feel that it's so important now. Everyone's moving so quickly, always in a rush, always on the go, working so hard, that we take the time as parents to relieve some of our stress, not only to be helpful for ourselves, but that carries over in our children. There's been studies that have shown, you know, maternal stress is related to preterm labor, poor developmental outcomes of the child, and um, some, you know, association with autism specifically um, while she's pregnant. So taking the time to do yoga, to exercise, to take a break um, and take care of ourselves, I think is so important before we can really be present for our children. And along the lines that what Lisa was saying, I feel it's so important for a family to come in if there's ever a question And I know that's a hard step to do. It's a very difficult phone call to make and an emotional um, experience. But I'm always happy to say, you know, you were overreacting. (laughs) Or there's there's nothing going on here. Um, She's meeting all of her milestones. I'm not concerned about anything. I'd much rather say that than to meet that child at four years of age and nothing has been done to help her. So just take that step, I think, if you ever have any concerns. It's what I recommend to family. I think that's actually the, the perfect place to end this. Thank you all so much for being here tonight. This has been incredibly informative, and I'm sure we've raised some awareness, and hopefully we've helped some of our listeners clear up misconceptions and given them resources and also um, given a call to action to some parents if they, if they do have any concerns or if they're wondering anything to, to bring their children in for an assessment because, uh, as you just said, Dr. Frazier, it's, it's better to find out that nothing's wrong and be relieved than to, to later find out that something was wrong that, that could have been treated much earlier. So thank you all. I've put links to all of your businesses and websites on the broadcast page. So anyone listening tonight can click through to get more information about anything we've discussed and all of our guests. This podcast is owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and we'd like to thank our sponsor, Michael Lowndes at pmlmedia.com. Dr. Fraser, Dr. Matthews, Lisa, Carissa, I cannot thank you enough for being with us tonight. You were all so wonderful, and I just want to say thank you to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Shannon, so much. This is really a great opportunity, and hopefully it will help another family. 
Most definitely. Thank you all so much. Great to meet all of you. You too, Shannon. Thanks again. Thank you. Good night. Good night.